Stardust Memories is the ninth film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1980. Woody Allen plays Sandy Bates, a renowned director looking for a change. He is invited and attends a retrospective of his own films, where he's faced with fans and critics all wanting his time. During all this, he reflects on a past relationship that's gone wrong but still haunts him and tries to find happiness with a new partner. Stardust Memories sees Alan tackle fame and celebrity with jet black humour, but it was seen by more than a few that Alan was ungrateful and bitter. Worst of all, it wasn't that funny. It was Alan's first big backlash since he started, but does this film deserve it? Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast by me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 10, we look at 1980s Stardust Memories, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it was hated. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first, then come back. Well, I thought it was terrible. Absolutely terrible. I don't recall seeing I mean, anything this This bad. man is sick. I mean, what is this? I slug? thought this was supposed to be a comedy. That was Seagulls, the most horrifying thing cars. I've ever seen. That's horrible. This exactly. is a so far, the story of Woody Allen, the filmmaker, has been a steady rise. By 1980, he made those five early comedies that built his comedic reputation and all did quite well, and then followed it with film number six, Annie Hall, and it took Alan into the stratosphere. The dark, intense drama interiors followed, and it did okay, probably on the back of Annie Hall's success. But before anyone could bat an eye, Alan gave the world Manhattan, and more acclaim followed. That broadly upward path stopped here. Stardust memory saw Alan take a commercial and critical hit. I don't want to be too general here, it's not like everyone felt the same way about this film, but this film was hated by many critics, a first for Alan, and it earned around the quarter of what Manhattan earned at the box office. So what was so wrong about Stardust Memories? The film that Alan made was about a director named Sandy Bates, but after the last several films, the assumption was Alan was playing a version of himself. There's no shortage of similarities. Alan was an acclaimed director, and Sandy Bates was an acclaimed director. But as a structure, Alan looked to another film, and that film is Eight and a Half. Eight and a Half is a film by Federico Fellini, one of Alan's heroes, and first released in 1963. It's widely considered one of the greatest films of all time, and certainly one of Alan's favourites. The film tells the story of Guido, who is the film version of Fellini, who is struggling to make a film and the bizarre, surreal adventures he goes through in his head. Eight and a Half was a film that was difficult to make, with various reshoots and rewrites. And it's a film about creative crisis, made by someone in a creative crisis. Fellini went through hell to make the film, but managed to use his talent to turn that confusion and crisis into something captivating on screen. He used the story of the director procrastinating on making a film into a way to spin off surreal segments on love, memory and creativity. It's a wild, sprawling work. Stardust Memories makes more sense if you watch Eight and a Half, which is not necessarily a good thing. Some of the weirdest parts of Stardust Memories are almost direct responses to Eight and a Half. The sudden appearance of aliens comes from the science fiction film being made in Eight and a Half. The variety of weird faces in the train introduction is a direct parallel to the traffic jam sequence that opens Eight and a Half. So what came first? The homage or the theme? There is a possibility that Alan loved Eight and a Half and wanted to experiment and make his version of that film. Or maybe he was in a creative crisis and the way to express it was through the structure of Eight and a Half. So Alan took all that Eight and a Half premise and wrote his own surreal bits. Like the main character in Eight and a Half, Sandy was a director at the crossroads who taps into dreams and memories. Thematically, there's clearly a few that stand out. Alan attacks the themes of death, celebrity and love. And I really do mean attack. When pressed, Alan said the film was about mortality and death. 
and the idea that even this person who has it all has to worry about death. Alan talked about death before in other films, but here he does it with a new edge. The film starts with death, as the trains with the winners and the losers both end up in the same place, a garbage dump. And really, the film could have ended there and Alan's point would have been made. The film really kicks off when Sandy sees the dead rabbit in his kitchen. It's what kicks off Sandy's dream of the film festival, and Alan has said that everything after the dead rabbit is a dream. And a subplot about the death of a friend, Nat Bernstein, is what sets Sandy on his mental crisis in the first place. And he worries throughout the film, talking about matter decaying and the death of the universe. Did anybody read on the front page of the Times that matter is decaying? Am I the only one that saw that? The universe is gradually breaking down. There's not going to be anything left. I'm not talking about my stupid little films here. Uh, eventually, there's not going to be any, any Beethoven or Shakespeare. Or... The death theme is really summed up with a term that Alan invents called Ozymandias Melancholia. It's a pretty grand title for a feeling, and Alan would actually use that term again in To Rome With Love. Ozymandias is the Greek name for Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II, considered the greatest leader of ancient Egypt. But the Ozymandias here is from the 1818 poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. The poem talks about a statue of the great Ozymandias being left to rot in the desert. Basically, no matter how powerful you are, time will wipe it all away. Ozymandias' melancholia for Alan is about the sadness one feels when they approach work or art or life knowing it won't matter. Sandy Bates suffered a depression common to many artists in middle age. In my latest paper, for the psychoanalytic journal, I have named it Ozymandias Melancholia. And the film ends with death, but also celebrity. Sandy gets shot by a fan. Alan has expressed his worry that he would get shot around this time, that some crazy fan would take it too far, and that dark side of the fan and celebrity relationship would play out in real life when John Lennon was shot out the front of his home at the Dakota building in New York less than three months after Stardust Memories was released. Alan could see the Dakota building from his apartment almost directly across from Central Park. Isabel! Isabel! You know you're my hero. When you break it down, it's all the stuff that Alan had to say about celebrities, fans and critics that brought all the negative views of this film. And Alan is taking a lot of shots. He makes the film executives look awful as they criticise Sandy at the start of the film. He makes fans look awful, always trying to invade Sandy's privacy, and one groupie even waits for him in his bed, wearing a t-shirt with his face on it. A fan, of course, eventually shoots him. I think this is the stuff that Alan thinks is funny, but audiences didn't. I don't know how funny it is to hear silly things fans say to you when you're just watching the film. It also doesn't help that Alan really hammers it home. It's just a constant barrage of annoying fans. And yes, I get it. They're supposed to be annoying, and there's supposed to be a barrage of them. And some of the lines are funny, but it seems like there's a hundred of them. Even otherwise serene scenes, Alan throws in a few fans. I know that's the point, but he makes the point a lot. Can I have your autograph? Oh, sure. Well, I was a cesarean. Oh, that's great. It doesn't help that the incidental lines feel so related to Alan's personal experience. Sandy wants to give up comedy and just do drama, the kind of thing that Alan has said. The references to Sandy's early funny ones, and of course Alan started in comedy and moved to something deeper. Tony Roberts is played by Tony Roberts. Alan's manager, Jack Rollins, plays a studio exec. 
Alan can deny his sanity, but he's definitely playing around with fiction and reality. And the thing is, his life had changed. I think Alan was unhappy at this point. He had his new way of living after Annie Hall in Manhattan, and he wanted to talk about that. And he was so famous that, of course, he saw the worst parts of fame and the worst parts of the film industry. Yeah, so tell me about yourself. Who are you? Give me, give me a lot of personal information immediately, because uh, don't hold anything back. I mean, are you married? Are you living with somebody? I'm just, I'm fascinating, but I'm troubled. <laughs> troubled? Yeah. Yeah? And because it feels like Alan is speaking about himself, people took personal offence. The critics that supported him felt like they were being attacked. Fans felt betrayed. Even Alan's other manager, Charles Joffe, walked out of a screening wondering what he had done to contribute to Alan's unhappiness. And in 1980, the film industry was still quite small, and it's easy to kick someone who was newly famous. Although I understand how someone like Judith Christ might be offended. Christ was a critic and a big Alan supporter who hosted weekend film retrospectives for directors. Alan attended and was a major guest of at least one of those weekends. Christ herself appears in the film, and here was Alan looking extremely ungrateful and actually putting it on screen by using one of Christ's weekends as the setting. Alan was barely hiding in metaphor. A lot of people have accused you of being narcissistic. No, I know, people think that I'm egotistical and narcissistic, but it's not true. I, I, uh, I, as a matter of fact, if I did identify with a Greek mythological character, it would not be Narcissus. Who would it be? Zeus. <laughs> and then there's love as represented by the women in Sandy's life. Sandy thinks back to a past lover, Dory, who he met on a film but suffered mental problems. He is currently with Isabel, a mother with kids, and he meets Daisy at the film festival. Of course, Dory, played by Charlotte Rampling, is the most interesting and memorable. If we take it that Alan is taking things from his own life, then I wonder if Dory is yet another version of Louise Lassar, Alan's second wife, who also actually appears in the film as Sandy's secretary. Both Dory and Lassar suffered from mental problems and had mothers that also suffered from mental problems, and their relationship faltered. Plus, they also starred in a few films together early in Alan's career. Their scenes together are incredibly sweet. There's a lovely scene where the two of them are talking about very little and a bird flies into their apartment. And Sandy flies off into his usual anxiety and Dory calms him and kisses him. And the bird flies away on its own. It's a lovely, lovely moment. The regret is also that with all this fame, money and power, Sandy can't do a thing to help Dory, the woman he loved. Daisy and Isabel don't get much to do. They are more archetypes than characters. They represent and not much else. Isabel is the stable, correct choice, a maternal woman. There is an allusion to her political leanings, but we don't find out much more than that. Daisy is kind of set up to be more as well, but she ends up being just the mystery of a new person. Just the alluring unattainable. For both, I wonder if they had their scenes cut. The death, the celebrity and the love stuff all end up back at what Alan wants to get to, which is what is the value of life. Sandy talks about luck a few times, but pretty much ends up at a point where there's no answers. Because as much as he's pointing to the culture around him, Alan is also pointing to himself. 
The celebrated alien scenes seem to be Sandy's existential climax. All his questions about what it means is thrown back at him as right funnier jokes. This is his lot in life. He won't find meaning, there's things he can't change, and people he can't help. And then the aliens leave, and there's no more answers than that. But shouldn't I stop making movies and do something that counts, like, like helping blind people or becoming a missionary or something? Let me tell you, you're not the missionary type. You'd never last. And, and incidentally, you're also not Superman. You're a comedian. You want to do mankind a real service? Tell funnier jokes. Yeah, but I, I, I've got to find meaning. Alan filmed Stardust Memories around New York and New Jersey. The film festival is held at the Ocean Grove Great Auditorium in New Jersey and Alan shot stuff at Filmway Studios in Harlem, notably all the train stuff. This wasn't an easy film to make. The shoot was supposed to be 22 weeks long but blew out the 31 weeks and went significantly over budget. Alan was rewriting and reshooting on the fly. There's an analogy that filmmaking is like building a plane while in mid-air. Well, Alan was building a plane in mid-air and redesigning it as well. Alan was also starting to really indulge in his perfectionist streak. He would apparently take a week to get certain shots right, waiting for the sun to point certain ways. Crews would sit around for days with nothing to do. It would get worse throughout the 80s, a period marked by multiple takes and many reshoots, but also some of his best films, so there's that. On the other hand, it was part of Alan's evolving process. Annie Hall was rewritten and reshot. Interiors was brutally cut and rewritten, and Alan hated Manhattan so much that he wanted to reshoot it but gave up. Reshooting is part of Alan's workflow. There was a lot of film that was cut. Most notably, that entire subplot about Nat Bernstein is gone. Bernstein's death is what set Sandy off, and he later sees him as a ghost. And if there was a structure in the original script, it's gone in the final script. Alan is going for a surrealist experience, but we don't have an ending where we're working towards. There's very little tension. It's a mood piece more than a narrative. When you break it down, there's actually some inception-level layering going on here. Scenes like the train bit and Jazz Heaven are from the film that Sandy is currently making, the one he's arguing about with the film execs. We see other films that Sandy has previously made with Dory. We see his old films as part of the film retrospective, such as the escaped anxiety monster. But according to Alan, all of that was a dream. So it's Sandy dreaming of Sandy at a film retrospective, and in that dream, he is making a film. Then by the end of the film, it turns out that everything we've seen is a film, and that Isabel and Daisy and all the extras are actors in a film that was just screened. So this means that the train scene at the start of the film is a fake film within a dream of a character named Sandy Bates, written and directed by the real Sandy Bates, who we meet for the first time at the end of the film. It's just too clever by half, and it didn't make it any easier for audiences. What were you trying to say in this picture? I was just trying to be funny. Cinematographer Gordon Willis is back with his fourth film in a row with Alan. He is again working in black and white, which was going out of style, but still not uncommon. Other black and white films from the same year include classics like Raging Bull and The Elephant Man. But I don't think the black and white made this challenging film any more accessible. Still, the film looks gorgeous, which is very typical of Willis. Let's talk about the faces. Alan really wanted to fill the film with interesting faces, and almost all the extras are incredible. There's many sequences where we see faces in close-up. Casting director Juliet Taylor apparently had a lot of fun finding people, even going so far as stopping people on the street. And in the whole, they do a pretty good job hitting their lines in long, complex scenes. The production is also great on all the random surreal sequences. And the team create wonderful vignettes that feel like sketches that could have appeared in everything you always wanted to know about sex or other Woody Allen films. They're well written and well staged, and they're also quite funny. We also get a glimpse of Alan doing his comic chops and delivering lines with energy, whereas the rest of the film, his performance as Sandy is fine, 
but he's kind of mopey the whole time. And then I thought to myself, if only I could put Doris's brain in Rita's body, wouldn't that be wonderful? And I thought, why not? What the hell? I'm a surgeon. Surgeon? Where'd you study medicine in Transylvania? So I performed an operation, and everything went perfectly. I, I, I switched their personalities, and I took all the badness and put it over there, and I made Rita into a warm, wonderful, charming, sexy, sweet, giving, mature woman. And then I fell in love with Doris. Throughout the film, Alan breaks or bends plenty of filmmaking conventions. There are more shots where we see the establishing shot, but we don't actually follow the characters, like the way we stay wide when Sandy and Isabel go to the train station, or the erratic cutting to Dory when Sandy is talking in his apartment to show she's on his mind. The most surreal is the wallpaper. According to Alan, the wallpaper in Sandy's apartment reflects his state of mind. If you were watching for the first time, you'd probably be wondering why anyone would have a wall-sized print of the very disturbing and famous photo of the execution of a soldier in Vietnam. And then it's kind of extreme to compare that to what Sandy is going through. Still, we see Groucho Marx on the wall when Sandy and Dory are in happier times. We see Dory in a room with a woman in a straitjacket when she is in one of her slumps. It's very surreal and oddly disturbing, but it's very impactful. The rest of the crew are made up by Alan regulars. Robert Greenhut is again producing, Susan E. Morse was the editor, and Mel Bourne is back as production designer. Bourne in particular echoed the opinion, shared by others, that the original script he read for Stardust Memories was way better than the finished film. Jessica Harper returns to Alan's world playing Daisy, having worked with Alan in Love and Death, but having to say no to a role in Annie Hall to make Suspiria. Marie-Christine Barrault gets very little to do with Isabel. She's a French actress and her English wasn't great, so she didn't do many English-speaking films. John Rothman doesn't get billing, but he's great as Daisy's boyfriend, Jack. He's very conventionally handsome and stands out from the adoring fans. He would also be great in a couple more Alan films in the 80s, like Zelig. He's a solid performer for Alan and doesn't get enough praise. What is it that the comedian says when his jokes are going well? I murdered that audience. I killed him. He screamed. I broke him up. So, so what are you saying? You saying that someone like, like myself or, <laughs> or Laurel and Hardy or, or Bob Hope or Furious? Furious or latent homosexual. <laughs> but it's Charlotte Rampling who steals the show as Dory. She was a model who had been appearing in several French art house films, but this was one of her big early appearances in an American film, and she certainly makes an impact. She exudes screen presence. It's no wonder it's her that appears in all the posters. She's utterly captivating in the scene where she talks directly to camera and Alan cuts different takes and different emotional intensities. There's a doctor here that thinks I'm beautiful and interesting. There's a doctor here that thinks I'm beautiful and interesting. Are you seeing anyone? You look thin. There's a doctor here that's crazy about me. Are you seeing any? This people uh, be too close. <laughs> like you just swim a lot. Can't feel anything. Yeah, they don't. Can't concentrate. There's no point in too much. Some fresh air. Feel better. The opening credits music is called Tropical Mood Rumba, a traditional composition performed by the Haitian orchestra. But throughout the film is Alan using existing jazz recordings. It's really the first time he's doing this, and it would become a trademark of his work. Here we get music from Sidney Bechet, Django Reinhardt, Count Basie, and Louis Armstrong, adorning a Woody Allen film for the first time. The film's title comes from the song Stardust, written by Hoagie Carmichael. The song is used in the scene where Sandy sees Dory looking at him as he eats, his happy memory. Those few minutes are amongst the best of Woody Allen's career, 
and a huge dollop of warmth and positivity in his bleak and cold film. And it's very much down to that wonderful version of Stardust, performed by Louis Armstrong. The lyric in question is, Though I dream in vain, in my heart it will remain. My Stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Stardust Memories was released in the US on the 26th of September 1980. It was released by United Artists and it's his eighth and final film for that studio. Three of the principals at United Artists broke off to form their own company after clashing with their new owners, Transamerica. They formed their own company, Orion Pictures, and as soon as Alan's contract was finished, he also jumped ship. United Artists would be sold off the year Stardust Memories came out after losing their pants on the massive flop that was Heaven's Gate. United Artists' downfall was blamed on Heaven's Gate, but it probably doesn't help that this film was also a flop. It's clear that this film is hard to explain. I always find the DVD covers so strange. It's this promotional shot of Alan and Charlotte Rampling about to kiss under an umbrella. It makes it look like it's a romantic comedy. It doesn't reflect the surreal madness inside. It should have a poster and a DVD cover like a Charlie Kaufman film or something. Not only did United Artists not know how to market this film, no one knows how to do it now. In 1973, Neil Young recorded a dark, abrasive album called Tonight's the Night. A few years earlier, he was a leading figure in the folk scene with Harvest, the world-conquering 1972 album that features busker classics like Old Man and Heart of Gold. With Tonight's the Night, Young deliberately, in his own words, went from the middle of the road to the more interesting ditch. Stardust Memories was Woody Allen driving his career out of the middle of the road and into the ditch. He would never be as popular as he was during the Manhattan Annie Hall era again. And yes, audiences were surprised by how bitter and dark this film is. And it made 10 million in the US, a quarter of what Manhattan brought in. Although it did better commercially and critically outside the US. Allen would not make films for the general public anymore after this, at least not for years. He would make films for people who knew Eight and a Half. And over the next decade or so, he would make films directly aping Igmar Bergman, 1950s newsreels, Italian neorealism, Anton Chekhov, Federico Fellini, Kafkaesque film noir, and so much more. It would be the mid-90s before Alan finally made some concessions to be likeable again. Andy, we've got to talk about the new picture. What do you want me to say? I don't want to make funny movies anymore. They can't force me to. I, you know, I don't feel funny. I, I look around the world and all I see is human suffering. Human suffering doesn't sell tickets in Kansas City. They want laughs in Kansas City. They've been working in the wheat fields all day. This film was hated on release and as the years pass, it has been reassessed and it's considered more positively today than ever before. And the themes seem pretty tame today. There's been plenty of films and TV shows that have lifted the curtain on the entertainment industry or has looked at the dark side of celebrity and fame. See Robert Altman's The Player, or D.A. Penny Baker's Bob Dylan documentary Don't Look Back, or even the TV series Episodes. But on the other hand, in terms of tearing apart the relationship between the famous and the fans, other people have also now done it better. Alan is repetitive and blunt. I don't know how much insight there is here, seen through today's lens. The film works best when taken in bits. 
when the beautiful cinematography and the music mixes with a lovely whimsical scene, it all works. I love the scene of Isabel arriving at the festival, dressed in bright white in the sunlight and with If Dreams Come True by Chick Webb playing. It's just pure joy. The scenes with Charlotte Rampling's Dory are all great. And there are plenty of great comic moments like the film segments. And yeah, there's plenty of incredible one-liners and Alan's wit. Where do you stand politically? What can I say to that? I'm, I'm for uh, total, honest democracy, you know, and I also believe the American system can work. <laughs> a lot of people love this film and there's a lot of great moments, but I feel like the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Alan had a premise that was actually Fellini's premise, but it was just a shell for him to ruminate on what was on his mind. There's definitely issues with the film. It's repetitive, it's unclear, and it's scattered in places. But on some of the things he's trying to say, Alan really gets to the heart of it. There's some probing, deep issues he's trying to tackle with his film that almost no one else was talking about, certainly not in American film. It's incredibly ambitious, but it misses the mark. The meaning that he was looking for just isn't there. Some fun facts about Stardust Memories. There's an incredible number of actors who got early roles in this film. Owen Keyes, Daniel Stern and others appear briefly, part of many, many speaking parts. Sharon Stone gets her first film role here. She doesn't have any lines, but she's utterly memorable as the girl on the train. Stone, for her part, knew that this would be a key moment and made sure the kiss, in her words, would melt the screen. I would say she does a great job. Stone actually worked with Alan again three more times, but never on something else that he directed. She appeared in Picking Up the Pieces, the weird 2000 comedy horror that starred Alan, and also Fading Gigolo, the 2013 romance that starred Alan and was part of the voice cast in Ants. Amongst the many fascinating looking extras are a couple of future Star Trek stars. Brett Spiner would go on to play Data in Star Trek The Next Generation, and Armin Shimmerman would play Quark in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, who both appear in minor roles. Only one other Star Trek main cast member has appeared in an Allen film. Ethan Phillips, who plays Neelix in Star Trek Voyager, appears in 2015's Irrational Man. And finally, young Sandy is played by Robert Monk. He is the younger brother of Jonathan Monk, who played young Alvy in Annie Hall. Joan Newman, who played Alvy's mother in Annie Hall, also plays Sandy's mother here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Stardust Memories? Now, in my episode last week in the teaser, I called this Woody Allen's most hated film. And yeah, at the time it was, but of course I was hamming it up to create a bit of anticipation. But still, what do you think? Should it be loved more? Is it still weird? I would love to know. And this week is pretty much the last chance to get us any questions for the Q&A episode for Season 1. Send me questions about the podcast or Stardust Memories or anything else at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. Support us. Yes, you can support us. There's a link to support us every month on Patreon where you can also get an ebook of transcripts of every episode. I'll record this month's shoutouts for next episode. But there's also another way to support us financially, and that's buy me a coffee. I haven't really mentioned it much, but the link has been in the description for all the episodes. It's basically a tip jar sort of thing. If you want us to help pay for the hosting and the work that goes into this podcast, you can follow the link in the description. And thanks to everyone who's used that service so far. If you want to spend money and get something back, I want to point you to the books we've written, The Woody Allen Film Guides. 
and also the artwork for the podcast, which you can buy as a bag, a poster, a shirt, or more on Redbubble. Links are in the description. A no-cost way to support us is to leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Spotify, Apple, and many others allow reviews. I'd love to see some more reviews. Or simply tell a friend about the podcast. As usual, check out the website for all the latest Woody Allen news at woodyallenpages.com and find us everywhere on social media with the username Woody Allen Pages. Next week, something different. I'm going to look at Woody Allen's relationship with music. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I gotta give you my one classical music joke, which I put in yeah. every single picture, yeah, and I invariably cut it out. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I don't know much about classical music. For years, I thought the Goldberg variations were something Mr. and Mrs. Goldberg tried on their wedding night. <laughs>